0: we will be having a another time this year. We're going to be doing the uh, kids' Christmas presents again for Salvation Army. I'm pretty sure. Don't, don't quote me on it. We're going to turn to Isaiah 45 tonight. A little bit, every time it's a little different. Doing and living theology. This is part seven. And I believe, I forgot to check, but I believe... I would have checked, but Chuck kept telling me, hey, it's my birthday. So I forgot to, um, I couldn't look at the information table. And uh, I guess it's a big one. I mean, 80. He's 80. (laughs) But uh, I forgot to look at the tape table, but I think, I'm almost positive that number 10 of justification, doctrine of justification, number 10 is done. Is it And it's beefed up. So always bear in mind that they are roughly edited. The reason they're roughly edited is because I've done the editing. Someday I should probably hire an editor. But they're also usually pretty beefed up with more scripture references. And so that wraps the whole series. We, I tried to do it in 10. So that's about 40 pages of the Doctrine of Justification from Romans. So what's next? Well, pray that I have clarity about what to start on Sunday. Doing and Living Theology, DLT, Part 7. The Way of Discovery will be the title tonight. The Way of Discovery. Now I'm going to do something where we go very meticulous and minuscule, and then we're going to go very large, the second half. So... Let's have just a word of prayer for a moment. Father, we're grateful for this open door that you've opened that no man can close. And it's a door of opportunity to come to know your son come to know you in your son and your son in you, to come to know that we are in him as he is in you, and we're grateful, Father. We pray that the Holy Spirit will take charge and grant understanding, spiritual understanding, which is so vital for our lives on this earth and for our sojourn, our very brief stay on this planet. We thank you in Jesus' name for what we're about to study. Amen. We've considered in our study of amassing evidence that the Greek and Hebrew words in Micah 5.2, and that's incidentally a good Christmas card if you make your own Christmas cards. Micah 5.2 is pretty good for that. That those Hebrew and Greek words in Micah 5.2 are not easily translated into neat English meanings. that's so often the case in the Hebrew and Greek text. So we have to be steadfastly attentive in our collection of evidence to determine, and what we are determining, for example, is whether it is really so that the only begotten Son of God means that the Son of God is eternally generated out of of the father's own substance as consubstantial with himself. That's a difficult thing to wrap our brains around, but that's why we're taking our time. In the first segment then of this increment of DLT, which is part seven, I want to show another example of how critical realism is used in biblical theological exegesis. And this is how we get to accuracy, this is how we get to precision, this is how we get to understanding. And this will be a crucial lesson in DLT tonight, no matter how much you grasp of it tonight, because for one reason, it will introduce us to a method that ought to be deployed, we could almost say has to be deployed, in a theological exegesis of a biblical book, say, like Ephesians, or... Hebrews critical realism applies to meticulous exegesis of the scriptures as well as to the amassing of evidence in order to come to what we call a virtually unconditioned judgment or an accurate determination regarding a particular theological truth now because this hasn't been done in history there are a majority of Christian theologians subscribe to an eternal hell doctrine which reflects upon God in a way that makes him into an abominable monster. And so that's how important it is to be very attentive to the scriptures. We're coming up against a huge tradition And doing theology today necessitates pulling down strongholds and demolition of very high things that have been erected by theologians, both in the West and the East, Western and Eastern theologian, over the course of hundreds of years. That's just a side comment, but I want to keep that focus. Critical realism applies to meticulous exegesis of the scriptures. In the closing message on the doctrine of justification in Romans, that's why I call this cross pollination. We're cross pollinating between two series here. In the closing message of the doctrine of justification in Romans, we considered Isaiah forty five, twenty five. What struck me about it is that both justification and glorification are mentioned as guaranteed for all the seed of Israel. And glorification and justification are both mentioned as occurring in one breath in Romans 8.30. So the correlation was intriguing. And so Isaiah 45.25, in which justification and glorification are mentioned in a way that I saw correlating with Romans 8.30, as many as God justified those he glorified in the first half of this increment tonight, then I want to show how critical realism, not naive realism, is deployed in the exegesis of scripture. In case you're wondering, exegesis is E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S it comes from a Greek word found in John 1:17. The only begotten son of God exegetes the father accuracy, precision. He precisely reveals the Father so that in John fourteen nine, if someone sees me, they have seen the Father, he said. Martha was right when she said when the Christ comes, he will explain everything to us. And when he came, he certainly did. He explained the Father. And that explanation has an exclamation point on it it's called the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Often, and this is almost a principle, meticulous exegesis yields momentous insights. In the second half of this increment of DLT, tonight we'll show how critical realism is deployed in the amassing of scriptural evidence to answer the question, and this is a question that's been hovering over our study now for a few hours, is it really so that the only begotten Son, in the phrase the only begotten Son of God, means eternally generated by God the Father, as Thesis 1 in the Triune God Doctrines by Bernard Lonergan states. So in the Greek text of Isaiah 45, 25 begins with the little preposition Apo, A-P-O. This is going to be helpful for those who will communicate the word of God, pastors, teachers, evangelists, theologians, for all of us who want to know the Lord. Apo or Apo accent there. I have to keep looking at the accents. The assumption of the naive realist, and I'm speaking of myself in my younger days as an exegete, I was shown that this word apo, which generally, very generally, too generally, means from, is illustrated by a circle, and at the edge of the circle there's an arrow proceeding out. So the idea, picture thinking, this is picture thinking. By picture thinking, it means away from, away from. Same with the word ek, and I've actually seen this illustrated in books when I was doing exegesis. Ek, we see the word in the Greek text and we think it means from. In this case, the picture is that from is illustrated by a circle with an arrow proceeding from the center. So it means out from rather than away from. And these are basic meanings, but it's the naive realist who sticks with this because you got to go deeper than the picture thinking in the exegesis of the scripture. Now I'm going to just explain why, and you don't have to get all this, but I'm showing it in a way. I'm sort of taking you into my study, into my cave, into my personal Gethsemane, where I work out a lot of these things. The naive realist, and I refer to earlier messages, pictures, the preposition apa as a circle with an arrow proceeding from its outer border. So when he reads that word in his Greek exegesis, he says, Well, that means away from, or maybe from. But that's picture thinking, and that's naive realism, and that's childish thinking, and therefore, when we become adults, we put away childish things, said Paul. Apa, in fact, is not incorrect in itself, this illustration. It sometimes means from in the sense of away from, as the preposition ek denotes out from, and it can be represented as a circle with an arrow proceeding out from its center. That can be the meaning. But this picture thinking has to yield to critical realism. Critical realism gazes rather than glances. It doesn't go by picture thinking. What I would ask is, is Apol used that way in Isaiah forty-five, twenty-five? Now the critical realist examines further. Critical realism can be illustrated in James chapter one and verse twenty-five. It is not the it is the one who gazes into the perfect law of liberty, who goes away and does not forget what manner of person he is. He stares. That which you learn by the way of discovery is far more likely to gain purchase in your soul and remain there as conviction than if it's just taught to you in a catechetical way or the preacher makes an authoritative statement. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. That means he's eternally generated by the Father. Write that down in your notebooks. That's true. You've learned it. That's teaching and learning. We're not going by teaching and learning. We're going by the way of discovery. So the critical realist examines further and finds, for example, in Lunita, which we've referred to before, that Appa is not only a marker of dissociation, which would refer to it this way, of going out from something or somebody. But with the genitive case, and I looked at the first word, and I found it's in a genitive case, and you don't have to understand all this. I'm just giving you an illustration of meticulous exegesis and how it sometimes yields to momentous insights. The word Apol is also in the genitive case as it is in Isaiah 45, 25. It's called a marker of agent, which may also be regarded as source. So it can be translated by, as well as from. Or again with the genitive, as it is in Isaiah forty-five twenty-five. the word apal can be a marker of instrument, which serves as a source of information or a reason, and therefore it can also mean by. It can be a marker of cause or reason with focus upon the source. Along with ek, as I also found in Lou, n i two scholars who emphasize the semantic domains of words. Along with ek, that little preposition in the Greek, It can be the marker of parts of a whole. It can actually even mean consisting of or made of. It can be a marker of the substance of which something consists or out of which it is made. And this is a genitive case in Isaiah 45. Therefore, this is how my mind started working as a critical realist. The concept can be readily illustrated, for example, in 1 Corinthians one thirty, which often comes to my mind, we are told that God made Jesus Christ to be righteousness for us. Our righteousness, therefore, consists of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my righteousness. And so I don't have to worry about my righteousness, because my righteousness is Jesus Christ. He's consisting of my righteousness. My righteousness consists of him. This is God's doing, who has made him to be righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and wisdom for us. Our righteousness, therefore, consists of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we're told that God made Jesus Christ to be sin for us so that we might be made or become the righteousness of God in him. Now we're told that the righteousness of God is us, that we are the righteousness of God, that the righteousness of God consists of us. Well, how can that be? Because we are in Christ, who is the righteousness of God for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, paired with 1 Corinthians one thirty, is a lifetime of meditation. That's a, it offers a lifetime of reflection. An evangelist could go on the road and all over the world with those two verses alone and see thousands come to Christ. And so, in that sense, in Christ, we consist of God's righteousness. And then I thought of Jeremiah 23.6. Yahweh, says the scripture, the Lord, Yahweh, whom we know is Jesus Christ, is called the Lord, our righteousness. Our righteousness consists of the Lord, Jesus Christ. If we are the righteousness of God in Christ, and if Christ is the righteousness of God for us, then we in him are most certainly justified. In fact, we are all that he is, justified, glorified, predestined, foreknown, called, justified, in him. It's all in him. If we look out away from ourselves, instead of the curvatura in say, where we're always occupied with ourselves, our performance, our preoccupation with our situation, And if we look out away from ourselves to him, we'll see that all of what we desire is in him. Our justification, our glorification, our predestination into conformity with him. It's all in him. It's all done in him. It's in him. And we are in him. And all this comes from looking at Appa, not just in a picture thinking, but thinking that it might even have to do with something like consisting of rather than away from. That's critical realism. Takes a deeper look. Doesn't just think in terms of picture thinking. The Freiburg lexicon. Also specifies that. Apa Is used not only to indicate source or origin. From or out of. But also to indicate cause or reason. Because of. On account of. As a result of. Or for. And it can indicate means. And so mean with. Or with the help of. Or by. Thayer whom we argued with a couple weeks ago, also says that appa can indicate causal origin or the cause. And then I looked up a Greek-English lexicon of the septuagint, which goes into the Greek specifically of the Old Testament, also says that "Apa" in the LXX or the septuagint can indicate source and that it can also mean by reason of. Now, in fact, and still be looking at Isaiah 45:25, "Apa," a little preposition is quite likely a marker of the substance of which something consists. It is likely that meaning in this particular verse. We can come to this by a comparison with the Hebrew text. In the Hebrew now follow me because I know this is bizarre and this goes outside of the realm of the way you usually think but why come here and just think like you always think this exercises a lot of things like soul spirit and brain now in the Hebrew text and I always like to go to the Hebrew text because there is that old thing called the Hebrew Old Testament In the Hebrew, Yahweh is used. And to be polite, oftentimes Hebrew scholars and Jewish people in general don't like to say the word Yahweh, so they use the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, or they use the word Adonai, which is all fine with me. It means Lord. But Yahweh appears. In the Hebrew. Now we're talking about real meticulous here. In the Hebrew, Yahweh appears, but before it there's a little thing called a clitic. K L I C L I T I C. Clitic. And it's a little word, "bo," but because it precedes Yahweh, it just comes out like a B apostrophe. Be Yahweh and it's a proclitic because it precedes the word it's kind of like what we would call a suffix now if you read the phonetic spelling you'll see ba ba balonai it's adonai, but it's preceded by a little prefix a tiny little prefix called a proclitic now you say now you're really getting technical yes i am i'm not i'm not picky about tithing mint rue and herbs I'm not picky about orthopraxy and doing exactly what you should be doing all the time, but I'm pretty darn picky about the minute exegesis of the scripture because I found one thing to be true. Meticulous exegesis yields momentous insights that are skipped sometimes by vast denominational theologies. And if you skip it, well, it can be tragic. And so, in the Hebrew, clitic by definition, you can look it up in an English dictionary, it's an unstressed word that is incapable of standing on its own. Kind of like us, incapable of standing without Yahweh. And it attaches... In pronunciation to a stressed word, which forms a single unit. The stressed word is Yahweh, Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord. And this is the proclitic, which can't stand without Yahweh. It kind of gives, a, if you want pictures, it kind of looks like pictures us. We can't stand without being in Yahweh, in Adonai, in Christ. And so, the stressed word is Yahweh, or Adonai in this case the proclitic in front of the word Yahweh or Adonai is the unstressed and dependent word it's actually the word bow but it's just be apostrophe in this case because it precedes Yahweh or Adonai and so this little bow or B attached like a pilot fish to a shark we might say Has all the meanings of apol in the Greek. It has all the meanings of apol in the Greek, only the emphasis in this case primarily means in or within. It can also mean together with. And I found a lot of English translations, to their credit, have grasped this nuance. Even the Latin Vulgate signifies this meaning in Isaiah forty-five twenty-five. It begins with the word in domino. In domino. In the Lord. In Yahweh. And it goes on to do the rest of the verse. I'm not going to try to read the Latin in domino. Justificabitur et laudabitur omnisemen Israël. That's pathetic, but in the Lord it says, "Therefore, in the Lord, Isaiah 45, shall they be justified? In the Lord shall they be justified, and all the offspring of the sons of Israel—that's pan, p-a-n to sperma—shall be glorified in God. That was struck me there like a train is that uh, the the peak verse." justification in Romans is Romans 830 as many as he justified those he glorified it's a done deal they're heiress, culminative effective heiress. why is it a done deal because it's done in Jesus Christ that's why it's a done deal the Lord of glory was the one they crucified in 1st Corinthians 2 8 and so on the cross the crucified disfigured beaten Scourged, naked, man Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. There's the Lord of glory. When he was justified, he was glorified. God, of course, took what men did to him. Men disfigured him. God transfigured him. I was crucified with Christ. But being crucified with him, I was justified with him. Being justified with him, I was glorified. It's all in him. That's why it's all done. It's in him. In the Lord, they shall be justified. And all the offspring of the sons of Israel shall be glorified in God. Well, in Christ, we're justified. And we are hid with Christ in God. So in Christ, in God, we are glorified. It's all in Jesus Christ. It has really nothing to do with you. I know that's difficult. This is how it is. it has everything to do with you, though, when you think about it. Because you're in him. This is how it is essentially construed in, and I'm grateful for this. Wow, I'm thinking, wow, this is rare. In the KJV, the King James Version, the English Standard Version, the Christian The complete Jewish Bible, the new American Standard Bible, the new International Version, the new Jerusalem Bible, the new King James Version, the new Living Translation, the RSV, the NRSV, and the YLT, Young's Literal Translation. In the Lord, we are comprised of the Lord. Comprised of God then it's really true that we are made the righteousness of God in him. That is in Christ. Moreover, Paul is exactly right to say to the saints in Colossae, and I believe Paul wrote Colossians, Christ is all, he said to them, and he's in you all. Christ is all and he's in you all. You are comprised of Christ. And in the end, all things will be comprised of him. And all things, well, God will be all in all. Any theology that does not, let's just say this. Any theology that teaches that God created all things ex nihilo, out of nothing, and does not say that he restores all things is a faulty theology. It's fake news. It's corrupt news. Bad news. That's why all the prophets, without exception, from the very beginning, prophets of God spoke of apocatastasis, a universal restoration. If they didn't, something was wrong with them. In the Lord... We are justified and in God glorified. We say that's all the sons of Israel. Well, it, Paul is exactly right to say to the saints in Colossae, Christ is all and he's in you all. And all of this plays into the mystery of God's will in Ephesians one nine, which is to sum up everybody and every being and everything in Christ. So that Christ ends up comprising all things. God who is pleased to dwell in Christ is certainly pleased to dwell in all things that are summed up in Christ. That's where this is all headed. That's the end game, the end goal. All this comes from this little apa. It plays into the mystery. And I just might start the doctrine of the mystery on Sunday. I'm, that and something else is in my mind. Now we're way ahead of ourselves. I've gone to use an almost dead metaphor. I'm way out over my skis. I'm already, I'm deep into where I was going to go in theology. I'm already way deep when I'm talking about all of us being justified and glorified and in Christ and in God. I'm way out. So I'm going to stand back up again. Pretty soon. You might even say then, what are you doing here? And I always like to stop and pause in this class and say, what are we doing? I'm showing that a naive, realistic approach to exegesis does not bring satisfactory results. It won't do to go by picture thinking and assume that apa means away from or even from. Critical realism, which I've introduced in this series recently, engages in a critical analysis. And immediately take away off the table the word critical meaning that you are censoring something. I'm not talking about that. The word of God is alive and powerful and it's a criticos, critic, the thoughts and intents of the heart. Critical realism engages in a critical analysis. Pastors who don't do this aren't worth their salt. They aren't even salt. And they talk about, well, you spend too much time studying. You can't spend too much time studying. Can't do it. It's impossible. Well, the pastor's supposed to go around visiting, counseling, sipping tea with bored housewives. That's always a good one. And making phone calls, making sure everybody feels good, and then give a pep talk to the congregation on Sunday morning for 18 minutes until the alarm goes off under the pulpit. In case you haven't recognized that, that's entirely sarcastic. Critical exegesis... Gazes rather than glances it takes the time to amass evidence to move through a couple of troubling thickets. Here's another fairly fresh metaphor And so we have here elements of Paul's stunning declaration in Romans 8 30 those whom God justified he also glorified all the seed of Israel will be justified in him, Yahweh the Lord, Jesus Christ, and glorified in God. There's no separation between justified in the Lord and glorified in God. And therefore, you died and your life is hid with Christ, where you're justified, in God in whom you're glorified. You see, there's where you can go into Colossians 3 and you got some stuff to come home with. i 'm just showing you that sometimes minute or let 's call it meticulous exegesis yields to momentous insights. A comparison of the Hebrew text with texts in romans five eighteen to nineteen for example, and Romans eight thirty put romans five eighteen and nineteen and Romans eight thirty together with Isaiah. 45:25, and you have the insight that all Israel, justified in Yahweh and glorified in God, is ultimately all of humanity justified by Jesus Christ's righteous act of obedience to the extent of death on the cross. See, now we're combining Romans 5:18 and 19, together with Romans 8:30. With isaiah 4525 we're getting that the, all the seed of the sons of Israel, and when we understand what Paul said, the seed is singular in Galatians 3:16 and it's Christ, then all who are in Christ are justified and glorified in God, then we start to get the idea here of a universal kind of salvific act. Paul makes all the seed, and this is where we play well in the field of the doctrine of justification. Ultimately, all of humanity, justified by Jesus Christ's act of obedience to the extent of death on the cross, means that all are in Christ, who is the seed, and all are made alive in Christ. That's Romans 5.18 combined with 1 Corinthians 15.22. All of humanity in all of its times. So the comparison means that Paul makes all the seed of the sons of Israel in 45.25 of Isaiah to be the equivalent of all the sons of Adam or all the humankind in all of its times. So the divine acts, and I said divine acts, as many as God justifies... He glorifies the divine acts of justification and glorification are united in the saving act, which is God's righteousness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because therein is the righteousness of God revealed the saving act of God revealed from faithfulness and faithfulness alone. Nothing outside of God's own faithfulness expressed in Christ's faithful obedience to the death of the cross. You could actually tell someone that's an unbeliever and an atheist, do you know that you are in the Lord and justified and in God and glorified? And they'll say, hell, right, right. And you'll say, you don't have to believe it if you don't want to, but I'm thinking maybe God's going to wake you up to that either sooner or later. And then you say, what you say hell for? I didn't even think you believed in it. Well, all you Christians do. I don't. If hell is what people say it is, then I think it was an existential state that Jesus entered into when he said, why have you forsaken me to God? When he did that for us. So, as we've cross-pollinated between the doctrine of justification in Romans with our DLT here, we come up with the idea... That justification and glorification are united in the saving act which is God's righteousness which is Jesus Christ. The last judgment is the past justifying judgment of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The universality of this justifying and glorifying action of God is further evinced or further evidenced if you want to say that. In the verses that precede Isaiah 45, 25. So now, look at this. We fan out and see the whole context. Not the whole, but at least a shorter context, a brief context. Look at 45, 22 to 25. Turn to me, God says, and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word, and that's where we're going next, capital W-O-R-D, that goes forth from my mouth is righteousness. And who is the word? The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word is Jesus Christ, and the word is righteousness. It's all in him. What is it you're going to say now, Lord? Lord? The word is dikaiosune, incidentally, righteousness, found in Romans 17, the key verse of Romans. What are you going to say now that you've set up this dramatic stage here, Lord? I've sworn by myself the word that goes out of my mouth is righteousness. Well, what is it? You've set us up. What are you going to say now? Every knee will bow to me. Sound familiar? Philippians 2.6 six. Through eleven Romans fourteen eleven and every tongue will give praise to God. it will be said to me this is what we 're going to say when knees bow, tongues of men and of angels say this. The, it's not going to just be Jesus is Lord, it is that. Yahweh is Yeshua, he's our righteousness, he's our justification, he's our glorification. We're bending glorified knees, we're singing with glorified tongues, and we're saying, it will be said to me, Yahweh says, only in Yahweh is righteousness. Therefore, Paul doesn't mean from him, but in him is righteousness. Only in Yahweh is righteousness, dikaiosune, and glory, doxa. As many as he justifies, he glorifies. Only in Yahweh is dikaiosune, our justification, and glory, our glorification. You can't separate justification and glorification. And then it says, and all that separate themselves shall be ashamed. Now, I, I, that's another study, but I will say this. Those who separate themselves are the people who say, that's not true for me. And they're going to be ashamed for a minute when they realize that they've been in him and he's been their righteousness all along. And probably the, big, the biggest shame is going to come from fundamentalist Christians who thought their righteousness had something to do With them. They separate themselves. Some people say. Jesus is my Lord. But they're separating them. Jesus said. They'll say Lord. Lord to me all day long. But they don't do what I say. They don't recognize. That all their righteousness. Is in me. There are other people. That say. The Lord. Is the Lord. And they mean it. Because they know that. Everything is in him. For them. In the Lord. Now we got Roman. Now we're, we got it here. forty five twenty five. In the Lord. Shall they be justified. That includes those who separate themselves. Incidentally. And all the offspring of the sons of Israel. Panto Shall be glorified in God. Again. This is a cross pollination with Romans doctrines. The doctrine of Justification which we just wrapped or completed Sunday. The vital takeaway here is that exegesis, especially theological exegesis, which makes us conclude things about God, of the scripture, must be undertaken by a critical, realistic approach and not just a simplistic or naive realistic approach. And as I say that, Brian, I'm thinking of Pastor Messick, who exactly, he's a poster child for what I'm talking about here. He does his homework, and he'll take four or five messages to get to the point of Judges 2.18 about the justice of God and the justification of God, because he does exactly what I'm talking about here. So, Brian, this isn't a rebuke of the way you do it. This is a congratulations for the way you've been doing it. Picture thinking doesn't cut it when it comes to careful exegesis. Now, this long look at Isaiah 45, 25 simply illustrates the need for sustained attentiveness in exegeting or explaining a text of Scripture. I've, now imagine if you've done all this homework and you come to tell somebody about it. And you don't have to. I, did, I told you how I did all the homework. It's like taking you into a birthing suite. Yeah, I do want to see the kid. I just don't want to see how the kid came out. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of a thing. But I just showed you how the kid comes out. It's painful for the pastor. But I could have just introduced you to the cute little baby and said, look, in Jesus Christ, you're already justified. And in God, you're already glorified. And you'd say, that's good. But you didn't get to really discover it. So, what I've done here is supplied this as an additional example of what we've been doing in Micah 5:2 to amass evidence to either affirm or negate that only begotten means eternally generated in the phrase only begotten Son of God. Micah 5:2, as wonderful as a verse as that is, and should be adorning all Christmas cards. It's still not enough to make a virtually unconditioned judgment because we're not sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that our construal of the verse which agrees entirely with the HCSB is correct. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is one I think got it accurately, says this in Micah 5.2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Now, indeed, if from eternity is a correct rendering of the text, then we're pretty much home already. We have the piece of evidence that the thesis of Lonergan is correct. He was eternally generated from the Father, eternally begotten. But we've also seen that the Hebrew olam for eternity and the Greek aeonios or "aeonos" can also have other nuances of meaning other than eternity. So we're not going to just drop the bomb and say this proves it. This one verse proves it. From here then, and this is the second part of the message and it's only 12 more minutes, but... We go to another part of the psychological analogy, comparing, it's a very imperfect analogy. We showed that the thing that is known of human beings is that the males are the fathers, they father, they beget, and the father is seen to beget a son, not temporally but eternally. That's an analogy. But now we're going to go to the aspect of the psychological analogy, which is that of a man who speaks a word. Now, say, I I would say the word Jared, my son's name. I could say Jared. Now, the word has gone from my mouth, but the word has not departed from my heart. It's still there. It remains in me. Jared remains in me. I speak his word name. I've spoken a word. The Father has spoken the word. The word has been eternally spoken by him. But the word has not left the Father. The, the word has remained in the Father. In that day you will know that I am in my Father. And my Father is in me. And that you are in me. And that I am in you. Today's that day. Well, we don't know it perfectly yet, but today's that day. A man who speaks a word. Now, I'm going to really challenge you now. So you're going to go home and have a sandwich and say, Man, am I glad I'm out of there. I can relax now. The one who is called the only begotten Son of God. Five times in John's writings is also called the word in the same prologue. Now, there's a prologue. It's called John 1, 1 to 18. The one who is called the only begotten son of God is also called the word in the same prologue in John's gospel. To the analogy then of human begetting, we can add the analogy of human speaking. A man speaks a word. The word goes out from him. From his mouth. But the word that he speaks. Remains in the man. In his heart and mind. Begetting the son. In eternal way. Is analogous to speaking the word. Capital W O R D. The only begotten son of God. Is the same as the word. Spoken by God. So we're dealing here with. Imperfect analogies, but nevertheless, enlightening ones. The only begotten Son of God is the same as the Word spoken by God. The only begotten Son of God is the Word of God. Now consider the extraordinary piece of writing that is the prologue of John's Gospel, John 1, 1 1-18. The prologue begins with this sublime statement. Inspired in the beginning was the word. Now just as a son has to have a father, a begetter, so a word has to have a speaker. If we can show that if the word is the same as the only begotten son, and if we can show that the word was eternally spoken, then we can show that the son is eternally generated because the word in the beginning is the same as the only begotten son. Now, John 1.14 makes another sublime statement. And the word became flesh. Now, here's my question. Was the word, and this is capital W, it's Greek halagos, Was the word only called the word by virtue of its becoming flesh or by virtue of its incarnation, we could say, or was the word the word in the beginning before the word became flesh? The answer is quite obvious that the word was in the beginning. And we could even say the beginning here, one of the meanings of the beginning is a beginningless beginning. But that's not, that's too premature to make that. It is evident that the word was the word before the word became flesh. By a close comparison of John 1.1 and John 1.14. But if the word was the word before the word became flesh then is not the only begotten Son of God the only begotten Son of God before he became the historical Christ by being born of a woman. And that's where we are back to Jothay and Arche. Jothay says he's only called the only begotten Son of God by his incarnation, by his birth. He's only called that by being the historical Christ. But if the word was before the word became flesh and the word was means he... Simply existed. He eternally existed. Not only is the word eternally existent. The word is God. We'll get to that maybe next week or next time. The word was with God. Okay, so he's distinct from the father then. But the word is God. Yeah, so he's God. He is a person in the triune being called God. But if the word was the word, now say that again, if the word was the word, before the word became flesh, is not the only begotten son of God, the only begotten son of God, before he became the so-called historical Christ by being born of a woman. The word from the beginning is the same as the only begotten son of God. You say... I don't know what you're doing here. I'll tell you one thing you're going to find out. You're going to be thinking a lot about the only begotten Son of God and the Word and His name is Jesus Christ. You're going to be focused a lot on Him after the result of this message. But the Word was from the beginning before it became flesh. So then was not the only begotten Son of God, the only begotten Son of God before His incarnation. Just... A little more torture and we'll be done. You say, Will you relieve us at the end? No. In the beginning was the word. The word was in first in John 1 1 indicates simple existence. And it contrasts with the word became in 114. The word was, it means eternally existed. We'll show that down the road. So was, I'll just use English in John 1, one indicates simple existence. Contrast with became. The word became flesh. The word didn't become the word. The word was the word that became flesh. The word never became. It simply was. We could say the word eternally existed. And we've already done that in our study of the fourth gospel, the fourth fourth G, as we called it. But we still have to be careful. We could certainly say this, given that the prologue goes on to say, the word was or always is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was or is or always exists as God. The Word always existed as God. The Word did not become the Word in becoming flesh. The Word, who always existed, we could say, eternally spoken, as God became flesh. The Word, who always existed as God, became flesh. The Word was always the word before the word became flesh. So was not the only begotten son of God, the only begotten son of God, before he came into the likeness of sinful flesh. In Romans 8, 3. Before the one who could be called Jesus was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. In other words, is Jesus the eternally begotten Son of God? Or is he only called only begotten because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary? And that's what Thayer is saying. Thayer says he's only called only begotten Son of God because he is the historical Christ. I say he's the only begotten Son of God because he's eternally generated out of the same substance of the Father. And we have to think in terms of an eternity that we never think about in order to get this. You see, you know what we're doing now? We're thinking. Now we're employing logic. The science that derives from the Greek word logos, which means the word. It translates into English as the word. What are we doing? We're doing theology. But we're not doing theology by the way of teaching and learning. We're employing the way of discovery. I'm not teaching you by simply saying Jesus is the eternally, eternally generated son of God, the son of the father. You write it down, you keep it in your notebook, you've been taught, you've learned... Now, you know, so that you learn it by rote. Rather, we're asking a question for intelligence. Followed by a question of reflection. Followed by the amassing of evidence from the scriptures with the aim of coming to a discovery. A discovery. Wow. Jesus of Nazareth is the eternally generated son of God and the word who is God and always was God who became flesh. Or not. I, th- I think so. So I'll close just by saying this. What you learn by the way of discovery tends to have a more dramatic and enduring purchase in your soul and spirit than what you learn simply by teaching and learning. And that's what happened to the martyrs. They discovered. And so when they were faced with the lynch pole or the crucified or the the cross or death by whatever means, they had in their soul the purchase of who Jesus Christ is as the eternally generated of the Father and in whom they had justification in whom they had righteousness in whom they had glory it was already their glory in this way they're going to enter into the glory that they already had it found purchase in their soul it found conviction It resulted in assurance of things hoped for. It resulted in the conviction of things not seen because it was discovered. So I took you on a journey that must have been like Christopher Columbus sailing on the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria and the people are saying, what are we doing? And the storms come and the length of days come and the seas are becalmed and then finally they hit a place called the West Indies. And they discover. So that's what I did to you tonight. You are the Nina, the de Santa Maria. <laughs> Maybe you're discovering this. You see, this has all been kind of a journey and we're still back in the thing where Jothe says, no, he's, he's only called only begotten son of God because he was incarnated. And so, and then I say, no, our case is, wait a minute. What about maybe he was eternally generated and was the only begotten son of God before he was begotten by the spirit. Perhaps he was eternally generated by the father before he was begotten in the Virgin Mary. And so he was the only begotten son of God before he became the one whose name is Jesus. Well, well, Then you get to places like Romans 1, 4, and you say by the resurrection, God dramatically demonstrated him to be the son of God. So did he become the son of God only by resurrection or by the dramatic power of God in the resurrection? Did God declare Jesus to have all along forever been the divine son of God? Get it? Good, you don't. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that now the Holy Spirit will allow discovery that a man can't bring. We thank you for the tremendous versatility of studying your word in which we can take a thousand different approaches and that we can take the way of discovery. And I pray that the result of tonight's time together will be a doing of theology, a coming to discover the wonders of the person of Jesus Christ. The wonders of him. And that your plan is to comprise all things of him. Of righteousness. Of redemption. Of sanctification. Of wisdom. And that we are in him. And that he is in us. And that we are in you father. And that you are in us. And that you created all things out of nothing. To bring all things to be comprised of your son. So that you can be all in all. What a tremendous Awesome message is in the Bible when we critically exegete the scriptures. Allow us then to discover you, Father. And may these discoveries gain purchase, traction in our soul so that we can go forth with the gospel of peace, our feet shod with the combat boots of the gospel of peace gaining purchase so that we can give a clear-cut exposition of the gospel, of the glory of the Christ, hidden even now by a veil in the hearts of the unbelieving, but unveiled to those who turn to you. You have commanded, turn to me all the ends of the earth. The result will be all the ends of the earth will turn to you may many thousands turn to you in these next weeks and months in our own country and across the world. Even as now you are giving dreams to thousands of Muslims in which Jesus Christ appears in the dream and reveals himself to them. This is the time in which you are revealing yourself through the word. And we thank you for it. And as we present this offering...